Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Today, I'm joined by Dr. William Anderson. He is the professor of economics at Frostburg State University, senior fellow at the Mises Institute, and he has been studying and writing about Austrian economics since 1981. We discuss his latest article on Mises.org about AOC's The Green New Deal, and he explains the economic reasons why it can never work. He gives us the examples of Mao's Great Leap Forward, the centrally planned economy of the Soviet Union, and Venezuela's current situation as examples of what happens when a government attempts to centrally plan an economy. Thanks for listening, and let us know what you think. Thank you, Bill, for being on the show today. All right. Good to be here. Excellent. I found your work. um, You've written many articles on Mises.org and Fee.org as well, and I think there's a rising tide of people who I believe are well-meaning and compassionate people, but they're embracing the ideas of socialism and you've actually written on that, that especially about this, the new Green Deal. And that's why we wanted to have you on to talk about that. And yeah. specifically that you talked about how the Green New Deal was a lot like Mao's Great Leap Forward. I think that is crazy. Um, not crazy that, it's, that you apply that, but crazy because people don't understand what the Great Leap Forward was and how, how horrible that was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking about... We're talking about something that was imposed that killed as many people as died in all of World War II, and uh, at least by some estimates. And so I, I think that that um, you know you, you're not looking you're not looking at simply just another legislative package. You're looking at this was a transformative package, and um, which and and my point is this that that if you actually tried to apply it as is written, as is is presented, you would have the results of the Great Leap Forward. It, it would it would create the same kind of calamity. Um, and uh, now, whether or not they they would is another is another thing. I mean that you know Mao simply he was he had absolute power and he was able to to do things uh, that you know I don't know if. Uh, you know, if a dictator could do them or not. I mean, I, I happened, you know, I'm watching the Democratic Party, though, and it's just going veering not just left, but into that really hard left that is, um, you know, which is really what you need. You need an ideology behind it, mm-hmm. and you need somebody with a political will to enforce it, and somebody who is insulated from being removed from office and so that's the you know that's the the main thing and i i think that uh but uh um yeah you know i'm not saying that that's that that um they're coming out there and saying let's have a great leap forward what i'm saying is that this is what it would would entail now i will say something else too i no longer think of people like AOC and Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren and them as well-meaning people. I, I don't you. think I don't think of them any. I, I used to. I basically used to think, well, they they were compassionate and they, and they, you know, I don't think of that anymore. I, I look at them and say, what they want is trans 
this power to engage in transformative action. And their view is that it's they're like typical progressives, okay? They're, it's not their people out there. It's we've got to drive humanity into this certain direction. And, uh, you know, I was having a discussion in class yesterday about what, you know, like the difference, like, say, regarding economists and, say, urban planners, how we would look at certain situations. And um, an urban planner's really they, they they tend to think of these broad generalities we're going to move people into these spaces and these spaces and rhetoric you know is plays a huge role in all of that but the the thing is that in their minds are not really dealing with people mm-hmm. they're dealing with something else and um and so and I, and I think that's really what what you have here uh, that, um, you know, and unfortunately that, uh, you know, economists, you know, certain groups are like people like Paul Krugman, you know, he's come out and endorsed this. Well, you know, I mean, and and it's not that long ago, you know, that he, you know, that he would have thought it to be sheer nonsense. Look, when I was at the, uh, um, Southern Economic Association meetings in 2004, they had a special session where he was a speaker, and uh, uh, in the Q and A, I had my hand up first. I got the first question, and I asked him specifically. I said, "Do you want to return to the seventy percent tax rates of that existed in, in 1981 before the tax reform?" He said, "No, those rates were insane." Now he's endorsing them, and even endorsing higher rates. All right, so where does that? You know, come in. And by the way, it's really interesting. He had a New York Times column that completely contradicted what he has in his college textbook. Wow. How yeah. about that? That, that is something. I, that, I did yeah. read that article with Krugman, and you talked about how a lot of times when people are arguing for these type of ideas, they have an appeal to authority. And yeah. do you talk about that with your students, about how to kind of look beyond that and really drill down into that? Well, what I tell them to do is try to break down, you know, I I use a term that the left likes called deconstruct, but in a different way. Deconstruction in the leftist term means, you know, taking that, why do we hold something in authority and all that, and so you take that apart, and the idea is to, is to take everything, every institution and basically reduce it to nothingness. Okay. And, uh, whereas what I'm speaking of, let's look, you know, at, for example, in in production, like the, like the green new deal. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to ultimately deal with real live factors of production. You're going to have to deal with the kinds of metals and things that go into solar panels. What about windmills? How much electricity can a windmill produce? When can it produce and when does it not? What kind of economies of scale can we expect from these things? Uh, What about just, you know, putting these things down? I I live in an area that has lots of windmills. So I've watched them as they, as they put them together. And, um, you know, as, and you, you have to, okay, let's, uh, let's take a look at all of that and say what is it that they're trying to do and why and and so and I think that that's where um, you know they, they say they just well we're going to do this we're going to 
we're going to crisscross the plains with high, you know, the high-speed trains. High-speed rail is going to crisscross, okay? Well, what does it take to be able to lay down high-speed rail, all right? And uh, by the way, it's all going to be produced by electricity that comes from windmills and solar. And you're going to have high-speed rail uh, that, um, you know, and, you know, that uses DC power. I mean, you know, I'm like, do you guys understand this, that what it would entail? All right. And so, and ultimately that what, what you would have happen would be that you would not be able to produce the amount of electricity need, needed for this these things. So what would happen? People would freeze to death in their homes during the winter. Um, you would have other, I mean, the, the death toll would be enormous. Uh, and that, of course, gets to another thing. I mean, I'm wondering, asking myself, is this also uh, a scheme for population control? Uh, I mean, understand that the left embraced population control 100 years ago, or the progressives embraced it. And uh, Paul Ehrlich's book, which has been shown to be a totally ridiculous, and Jimmy Carter's uh, Global 2000, which he claimed that unless you have state control of all these resources by the year 2000, you know, that humanity is going to deteriorate into this dystopian society. That was just 20 years later. None of that happened. Things actually improved. And uh, the world now, we have more than twice as many people in the world as existed. When Paul Ehrlich wrote uh, his book, uh, Population Bomb, but he still considered this great guru. I mean, you know, Paul Ehrlich is not a guru. He's, you know, he's a scam, scam artist. You know, yeah, he's, he's a good, he's, his area, his knowledge of butterflies is excellent. You know, he is probably, at least maybe even today, the acknowledged world expert in the world of butterflies, okay? That does not make him an expert at anything else. And, and so I, I think that's something else, too, where the left is constantly lionizing it and worshiping these people that are, uh, you know, that are, they're, you know, they're scam artists. They've been proven wrong over and over again, definitely, in many different okay. areas with the environment. And you mentioned okay. with, we, I want to go back to the New Deal and, and Mao's Great Leap for a second. Um, Mao's Great Leap was based, um, the Great Famine that happened there that killed, some people estimate, 45 million people in a very short yeah. period of time. And uh -huh. part of that happened because of pseudoscience. They were going by some Russian who said, that uh, Russian, um, I'm, I can't remember his name offhand. But he, okay, gotcha. And that he had all these crazy ideas about how to plant fields. And then he had a partner who said that you need to plow one to two meters down. And what that did was it turned the topsoil back down into the earth. And so they had these massive reductions in the amount of food. So when you talk about electricity not being able to be produced, we've actually seen what happens when people base ideas on uh, controlling large groups of people with science that not everybody has agreed upon is a good idea. Oh, look. and not only that, but E.F. Schumacher then, in his book, Small is Beautiful, took the stuff from the Great Leap Forward 
and said, this is what we need to do for the rest of society. And people bought into that nonsense. And uh, the, uh, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's mind boggling, but, you know, I, I think that, and, and look, it's, it's with all different groups, you know, once a narrative gets established, it's very, and people latch on to it, it's very, very hard to shake it. And it's not just on the left. All right. I mean, I've seen conservative narratives, uh, and especially in the area of foreign policy and wars abroad and, and, and the like. Uh, I mean, don't forget, for me, I, I went through the Vietnam War for a year with a draft card that said 1A. And I actually got called up for my, for my physical, and the only reason I didn't get called, get inducted into the armed forces was because a month and a half after my physical, they signed the peace accords. Mm. So, you know, my, the timing was just right. But I could have been called, uh, you know, after I turned 18, I had a low draft number and I had a card that said 1A. They could have called me at any time. And, you know, that would have been that. So, and the Vietnam War itself was based on, frankly, a, some really bad narratives. And so, um, I think that, uh, you know, that they... <sighs> People get on these things, and then what happens is they have their mind that if we can just force enough resources into this, that we can, um, that somehow we can prevail. I mean, that's what happened in the war in Iraq. That's what's happened in Afghanistan. It's been more than 17 years. You know, I mean, you know, this is like, uh, I mean, we ask ourselves about, well, how could you have a, the 30 years war? Well, we're trying our best, to, you know, to match it. And but yet, what are they saying? If we could just get enough resources, if we can just put enough of our people into power that somehow, uh, you know, if we could just kill enough Taliban, um, you know, it's like, look, it's like my, when I was. When I was in high school, the whole thing in Vietnam had deteriorated to body count. Well, we can just kill enough of them. Why then they'll just get discouraged and go home and stop being commies or something. I don't know. But, you know, it's just so it's it's the sort of thing that um, and I'll by the way, and I'll even go step one, make one step further into an area that I'll bet you is going to make some viewers mad. But just to make, you know, it's just and that is that you know, the Donald Trump wall. And now, number one, none of us actually believe that Mexico was going to pay for a wall. The second thing is that nobody, I mean, there is no way to be able to construct a huge wall all the way from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico, I mean, without having to use vast amount of resources that we don't have. You would have to, to take vehicles into areas where there's no roads and no way to be able to construct anything. You would have to bring entire factories into, into that area, those areas. Um, I mean, you look at just the, the, you know, it's, it's not unlike that the mentality behind it is not unlike the green new deal. It's just that it's a smaller scale sort of thing. And it's just about a building project versus trying to transform 
all of humanity into somebody else's image. But nonetheless, as a particular project, um, it would not, it would, it would use huge amounts of resources and probably not be all that effective. But, you know, you can't say that in conservative company because, I mean, they're, they're just, I mean, in their minds, they're not thinking about that, about resources, about how these different factors of production put together. In their minds, it's already created and it's doing whatever they say it's going to do, even if it's not. All right. that's, that's yeah. That's a real problem that that I see time and time again. We have this idea that something is doing something when in fact it's not happening. That's a great point about. I think that a lot of people are looking at the problems in society. And I think we can agree there are structural issues with the way society works. But yeah. but putting our finger on what causes that, I think that's where a lot of people disagree. <laughs> And the idea that putting more resources towards a bad idea is never a good idea. The Soviets tried that for 70 years with their central planning committee. They had the complete oh, control yeah. of their entire society. Yeah, yeah, they had they had control. And and, uh, and understand something else that the people, the planners in Soviet society, the, I'm talking about the people who were actually putting together God's plan. These were really smart people. You know, they they got their doctorates at, at Moscow State for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, they a Moscow State doctorate in economics would have had about the same rigor as say a doctorate that you would get from Harvard in economics. Right. Okay, that uh, and by the way, they learned a lot of the same things. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, there was the other the ideologies, and I, I've got friends who. Who actually got their doctorates at Moscow State? And, you know, I've asked him, "Well, what did you learn?" And part of it was, "Well, we just what everybody else does." But uh, you know that uh, they they learned all the models and all that. But they also had other things that uh, you know that they had. But here was the deal: they put together these vast models. Um, we should have to do this in grad school, but not the vast models, just little models. But you would have simultaneous equations, okay? And you would might have hundreds of them. Each industry, each, you know, quote market or whatever, they wouldn't really market. You would, have, but you would enter data in for prices. You'd like get the Wall Street Journal, and you'd enter these numbers in, all right? And you, and they would, they would do that, and then they would solve these things, these simultaneous equations using matrices. And they just, they did marvelous things in, uh, in matrix uh, algebra. I mean, amazing stuff. And I remember in a math econ class, uh, Henry Thompson, who was later my dissertation chair, he, uh, he was, you know, in his own unassuming way, he's at the board says, well, the Russians did, Incredible things with with you know matrix algebra and for their central plan didn't do them any good, but they really did good did bad stuff. <laughs> you know, we we all laughed. In other words, you couldn't. They tried to replicate an entire economy with simultaneous equations. All right, and what they found was this: it's a joke. You, no, you can't do that. They all knew it. I mean, they. You know, these guys all knew this was a bunch of garbage, but what can you do? I mean, it was, 
um, you know, you got a nice apartment. You actually could shop at the Yellow Curtain shops, and you could, you know, you could have food that was halfway decent, and you you would have a car, and you you know you have heat in the winter, and and all the stuff that um, you know you you had relative freedom that other people didn't have, and a better lifestyle. So yeah, you know, something you would. You would throw this stuff together, and then you would just, they would, oh yeah, they, of course, they would constantly be entering new numbers and all that. It was just all just, you know, it's like, it's like grad school, you know, all over again. You just, you're just solving numbers, you know, just doing math. You're doing math problems. Except it has gulags at the end of it, right? Oh, yeah, it's, that's just it. I mean, and uh, you, you end up with, well, what, what you, you know, and by, you know, by towards the end, I mean, the gulags were getting closed down. I mean, this was really Lenin and Stalin mm-hmm. uh, as much as anything. Uh, but what was happening was everything was just grinding to a halt. And people are asking, well, why do we have to live like this? Please explain why we have to live like this. And what is the higher purpose that uh, is, is a, you know, about, and ultimately they just didn't have any more answers. I mean, when they, you know, it was, you know, why do you let the Soviet Union collapse? Well, because my God, can you explain to me why we should keep it going? And and once you couldn't come up with an answer of why, you know, then then it was then it was done. And and I and the point being that the you know the Green New Deal in and schemes like it are they're utopian in the same way we're going to do this there's there's the appeal to the higher purpose in the soviet union it was equality uh it was making everybody equal and um and in china it was going to lift this entire peasantry out of uh you know, out of poverty, no more hunger. And Americans believe that stuff. Even as Chinese were starving, you had people like Dorothy Day declaring that China had ended all hunger and poverty. It's like, where did that come from? You know, uh, that, you know that's that's just stupid. But um, but what you end up with something like the Green New Deal is this vision that has to be imposed right. on somebody and. And the problem is that the only way you can impose a vision like this is through out-and-out dictatorship. You can't do it with a price system. Because, I mean, let's think about this for a second. You have huge amounts of capital in the United States that suddenly would have to be declared non-usable. You would have whole power plants, we've got to shut them down. Um we have uh, we have we have to take all aircraft out of the sky. Um, we can no longer have diesel-powered engines um, hauling freight. We can no longer have automobiles. We must we must all have electric trains that are powered by windmill electricity. All right. Now, the question is, how do you enforce something like that? Well, you do it through brutality. I mean, by the way, what you do is you make sure that the people enforcing that are still using you know, fossil fuel-powered vehicles, that they're still flying across the country, 
Um, it's it's a vision that they have for the rest of us that they do not plan on living in themselves. And it's like AOC, what did she do? She goes to Washington, she gets this luxury apartment, she starts, she puts her boyfriend illegally on the payroll. Uh, why? Because she can do it. Right. Okay, and uh, that it's, you know, I mean, and, I mean, socialists always have had this great vision for other people. They just don't plan on living it themselves. Uh, other people are going to be able to do it. I mean, Mao always lived in luxury. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he never missed a meal during the, uh, uh, you know, during the worst days of the famine. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. And it's like these people who talk about uh, global warming. I'm not a climate scientist myself, but I, I'm very suspicious of people who want to use uh, these massive models you were just talking about in, on the climate, and they fly around the world to all these fancy, like the fanciest places on earth to talk about how we need to shut our air conditioning off and not have gasoline in our cars. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, along with something like global warming, the way what you do um, is the way it's the way that you enforce the science, for example. Let's, OK, that scientists have, have pointed out that we are not seeing these extreme weather patterns like California. You know, they've had some really awful wildfires. So they say, oh, let's see what happens. Climate change is responsible for this. No. What's been going on? Well, California has had drought. You know, have we not had drought before? Uh, yes. And also that forest management has been stuff where you've got fuel, you know, all over the, uh, you know, the ground. And so it's going to catch. And when it catches, it's, it's going to be a conflagration. You know, we saw, we saw this thing in, uh, um, in Tennessee a few years back, we, or actually a little over two years ago, when you had wildfires in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I, I remember that. Killed, yeah, and I mean, remember, I, mean, I went to the University of Tennessee, and, okay. and, I mean, that, and we went, I mean, the great, great smokes. I have been to the places that, you know, and hiked in those areas that, that burned over. Well, what happened? I mean, we're talking about this area which they started setting an office national park in the 1930s. And so for 80 years, there's no forest management. Everything gets thicker and all. And then you end up with a dry season and fire starts and, and the authorities decide, ah, we'll just let it burn for a while. And then all of a sudden these winds come in and the whole thing gets out of control like that. And they had no system for allowing, you know, for letting people know what was happening. And, and so a lot of people got killed and a lot of places burned down, but it was forest management in the end and um, that, or for, forest non-management, you know, because environmentalists believe, well, we just leave everything alone. If we don't touch it, everything will be great. Well, you know, Native Americans didn't believe that. <laughs> You know, and, right. and uh, you know they, they they engaged in land management. You know they, but uh, um, but nonetheless, you have a certain. You know, you create conditions, and these are you know human uh, created conditions that um, that then you know turn you know turn into conflagrations. People build homes. Oh, we want to get close to nature, so you build homes in these forests, which 
Uh, if you've ever look, I remember driving in Colorado several years ago, and we we're way up in you know pretty high elevations, and you see all these these homes here, and I'm saying you know people, I said, oh my gosh, look at this. I mean, you ever have a wildfire here? It's dry. Those places are toast. They're all gone. And uh, um, but you can't, you know, or you know. We're having more powerful hurricanes now than ever. No, we're not. We're not having more powerful hurricanes. It's just that more people are building on the coast. Uh, you know, it's like Sandy. Um, you know, you had all this, you know, this, you know, the, the this amusement park, you know, sitting in the water. Well, who builds an amusement park right on the water? You know, something it puts all this stuff. It's just utter foolishness. But then something happens, and this oh, see, global warming. If we, and then you know, if, so, so if somebody does a good science, a study with good science, and it contradicts the narrative, they go after the scientists. They have you know, the person gets threats. You get threats to your career. You get pushed out. You don't get promoted. You might get fired, you know, you get vilified, death threats, uh, you know. And so, you know, ask Roy Spencer, Judith Curry, we, these, both of these are, you know, highly respected scientists. They don't go with the flow. And so, you know, Curry finally just, she just retired at Georgia Tech. She said, I've had enough of it. But, uh, I mean, that this is, you have to develop a thick skin, but the Democrats want to throw these people into prison. I mean, they want arrests. They, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll be surprised if they don't start calling for executions down the road. And uh, so I, I think that, that, that you have to, you know, that there's something to be said in the, in for enforcing these ideas. And the only way you can enforce them is ultimately by being willing to kill. You and have to. That's a great point because everything the government does is at the barrel of a gun. Even a parking yeah. ticket can it can lead to your being shot and killed if you if you don't pay the ticket. They come to get you, and then you resist, and they try to arrest you. You still resist, and then they end up killing you over a ten dollar parking ticket. Yeah, and I I think that yeah, Bradley Balco made that point. He said you know legislatures listen. Are you willing to kill for this? And um, and I would say, yeah, that a lot of folks are, are willing to kill. I mean, you. I don't know any way to put it except to say that there is a. You can't impose this stuff without a totalitarian mindset. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it, it's always the same way. You know, you get these. Um, uh, you get these young people, the you know that really, you know. It, I mean, I could see myself believing in that nonsense when I was eighteen, nineteen sure. years old. And um, you get young people to do that. That's what Mao did with the Cultural Revolution. It was the young people who got this revolutionary fervor, mm -hmm. and they about destroyed the country. And you know, it was like what was left of the country after the Great Leap Forward. Then, you know, and my friends from China who lived through that won't even talk about it. Wow. I mean, you can't, they will, they just, we don't talk about it at all because the experience was so horrible, so traumatic. And, um, and so, you know, the idea is, okay, we're going to get these young people and they're going to be the enforcers of this. Well, 
the, you know, if you read the, you know, the, the proposal, the Green New Deal proposal and the, and the FAQ that came with it, I mean, it looked like it was written by basically a bunch of kids. Yeah, I, I, I think you're exactly right on that. The Jesuits, I think they used to say, give me a kid at six years old and I'll have him for life. And so, yeah. and the, I think this ties into the idea that, that a lot of times the people want, who want to push these ideas, they, they recognize that there are problems in society, and I would agree with that. But at the same time, they never talk about the Federal Reserve. They never talk about the war on drugs. They don't talk about the criminal justice system. And like you said, the wars overseas and $5.6 trillion have been wasted, not, not to mention the blood and the lives of the young men and women over there as well in oh, Afghanistan yeah. and Iraq. And it's not just American lives. I mean, right. I think – and here's something I think that's really that, – that you have – that. And it's very hard for me. I have lost friends over this. I lost friends over the the Iraq War hmm. because my point was not simply that, hey, Americans are dying. My point was that people in Iraq are dying and they were no threat to us. They they did nothing to deserve having their lives turned upside down, their homes burned. Um, Businesses destroyed. Yeah, everything, their way of life destroyed, um, you know, for for what? And I don't even know what it was. And and then I, I remember um, telling people in 2003 that, you know, we were taking a page out of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. The way the Soviets paid for it was that they, they piped natural gas out of Afghanistan and into Russia and they um, they did what they called the cement swap, where because Af Afghan cement was a lot higher quality than Soviet cement, and so they did literally a pound for pound swaps, and this was how they paid for, at least in part, for this war. Well, what was the idea with Iraq? Oh, we're going to, you know, they'll pay for it by oil sales. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's nothing more than confiscation of their oil. And it, you know, it, it turns into, uh, okay, it gives full justification to somebody who says, well, this is a war for, this is blood for oil, war for oil. And you, and, and you can't argue against it, but, um, man, I could not, uh, and I mean, there were some prominent friends. I won't give any names. Um, one of them died, uh, a year and a half ago of cancer, and, and I mean, the Washington Post had articles. I mean, this was really, it was national news, and, and this guy and I, we, we basically had a split over, over that stuff, and uh, we had been really good friends before then. Wow. Uh, and there were other conservative people that, that, you know, that I lost friends over, because my point is, is that we can't, we can't talk about these things. You've you've got to look this stuff in the face too. Exactly. And, um, and I think and Ron I, Paul he used to say the welfare warfare state that you had the welfare yeah. side on one side and the warfare state on the other. But I think it it boils down. To Ayn Rand she talked about that the the real debate in society is individualism versus collectivism, yeah. and the warfare state is really a collectivist idea. That, oh, absolutely. That oh, other ab people don't have individual rights. Yeah, ab absolutely. And in fact, I mean, look who, who are the biggest, 
proponents of war, the United States constantly being at war? Well, Bill Crystal, okay, and Max Boot. These guys also believe that mark a market economy sort of is a weakness, you know, and and you start seeing that that a price and all that stuff that people. People need, you know, me like they're like Teddy Roosevelt in that thinking. You know, Roosevelt, you got to be real men, and real men are tested in war. And so, guys like Roosevelt, they always wanted us involved in wars. And um, they, they were, you know, that um, whether you know war, you know, he was one of the early people agitating for us, to, you know, get, to get involved in World War One. And um, the. Uh, um, and so you, you have, or, or like John Bolton, I doubt John Bolton really has any respect for market economics. I mean, his his view of the world, Bill Crystal's view of the world, um, and uh, Max Boots' view, these are collectivist views. They see us, you know, or it's like Crystal was always talking about, we need new, national greatness. That was his big thing. we got to have, you know, something like pyramid building. I mean, in their mind, while well, I look at it, the pyramids were this symbol of greatness in, in Egypt. And I remember one time they were being interviewed, and they say, what should we do? And he says, I don't know, maybe build a tunnel to Europe. And I'm like, what? I mean, you... you I mean, you you see something like that, and and you realize that these guys don't operate in the same universe that the rest of us do. And yeah. I mean, it's a you know, it's I mean, I don't know that he was serious, but in one sense, I mean, I wouldn't even the only way I would ever point say a tunnel to Europe would be if I was be trying to be totally facetious, if I was trying to say that um, if I was trying to mock a concept of national greatness, that's what I would use. He used it in defending it. And I, you know, do I think that he actually believes it could be built? I don't know. Um, I and um, Words are easy, and I think that's where these people who use rhetoric to say about national greatness, the Green New Deal, they also have an element of that where they want the United States to lead the way and export all this green technology to the world. Yeah, well, yeah, and I think something else, too, that, uh, and this goes back, this actually goes back to an incident in my childhood when JFK made the announcement that we're going to put a man on the moon, you know, by the end of the decade. Um, I remember that announcement. Um, I was, uh, I believe, in second or maybe starting third grade at the time. But I remember when, when he did it. And I remember all of the excitement about space program and, and you know, like when John Glenn went up and, and uh, for that matter, when Yuri Gagarin, you know, I remember the hysteria, you know, in, in, my, in my classroom, you know, the next day. And, oh, my God, the Russians are going to throw bombs on us from space and that kind of stuff. And, and, um, the, uh, and so you, you end up with 
with that mentality. I remember when George Bush made the announcement, George uh, W. made the announcement, I think it was in 2003, we're gonna, we want to put a man on Mars. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I remember my, you know, my thinking at the time was, uh, you know, oh, gee, another national greatness program. And Notice, though, it did not have the same effect as JFK and, and you know, the man in space. But notice this, mm -hmm. that what did they appeal to when they announced the Green New Deal? What did they appeal to? They appealed to JFK and putting a man uh, on the moon. That, and so you, you end up, I mean, with that appeal to national greatness and, uh, you know, and for someone like me growing up as a baby boomer, I mean, what did we have as national greatness? Well, we had World War II mm -hmm. that, uh, um, you know, and, you know, I was born uh, eight years after the war ended. I was born just after they signed the uh, uh, the armistice or whatever it was in um, uh, for the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And just a few months afterwards, and um, and so you know we, so you were still caught up in the pride of winning World War Two, and um, and then there was that you know the putting a man on on the moon. So this idea, well, if we just collectively put our minds to something, we can do it. And um, you step back and you realize, you know, this is these things have their problems. I mean, you know, what's the point, you know, first, what's the point of devoting all these resources to this? What is it that you're trying to just make Americans feel good? I, I don't know. But um, you end up with a collectivist mentality. And I mean, yeah, it was, I mean, uh, I remember the day when the men man landed on the moon. I was right. working at Rock City, you know, a tourist attraction, a lookout mountain. I was I've up been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tearing tickets. Yeah, I love that place. And, uh, I was tearing the tickets up, and I remember uh, Ed Chapin came downstairs and made the announcement that they've actually that the limb had actually landed on the moon. And yeah, I I remember that. We were all there was that sense of wow, you know, national pride, but. Um, Whatever resources it took to do that were nothing compared to the resources that it would take to transform the entire American economy, the way that we get electricity and all that. And it it simply would not be able to be done. You just and this is where guys like Paul Krugman where they really mess up because they think of costs simply as monetary outlays. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what do you do? Well, you just print lots of money. I mean, that's a, that was the FAQ, right? Oh, how do we pay for this? Well, we pay for it like the the bailouts, you know. And the idea is, to, you know, we're going to shame all those capitalists. Well, there are a lot of us capitalists who said they don't need to be doing bailouts. Uh, and no matter what Paul Krugman might claim, it wasn't. You know, the idea that, boy, if they just saved Lehman Brothers, we wouldn't have had the meltdown. You know, that is nonsense. Right. And, um, but here's the thing, that they think of them as monetary outlays, so we'll just print lots of money and pay for it. And no, costs are what you give up. 
what do you physically give up? Costs are real things. Is that opportunity cost? Is that what you're Yeah, it's exactly right. All costs are, are opportunity costs in the end. And um, you you can't get away from them. And so what they, they believe, though, is if it's like what they believed in Iraq, right? In the war. If we just throw lots of resources into there, we can rebuild the country. Well, they just, you know, threw trillions in yes, there. Trillions. And and you couldn't you couldn't re, you know, you couldn't do it. And um but people they still you know, look, I mean there's there are lots of people out there who believe that the Marshall Plan rebuilt Europe. Mm -hmm. It did nothing of the sort. Didn't even come close to rebuilding Europe. The places that got the least Marshall Fund money were the places that recovered the quick the quickest after the war. Wow. And uh, and so on. And so I think that it's a um, that, you know, we, there are a lot of myths out there. And that's one of the real problems, too. You, you have these myths and they just keep going on and on. And, uh, you know, like the myth that the New Deal pulled the the uh, country out of the Great Depression. No, mm -hmm. it didn't. It didn't do anything of the sort. It extended the Great Depression. It, you know, it institutionalized the Great Depression. And, uh, you know, or the other thing, the World War II pulled the country out of the Great Depression. No, it didn't. It, you know, levels of deprivation on the home front in World War II were as great or greater than they were during the, you know, during the Depression. It's just that people had this purpose in mind. And I, I get that, you know, that, uh, um, you know, go team. I mean, I feel that whenever, you know, uh, you know, my team uh, is playing a rival. Yeah, there's definitely, there is uh, definitely that tribalism, I think, that kicks in. Oh, yeah. and, and everybody wants to be part of something bigger. And you yeah. talked about, um, you know, opportunity costs is one of the issues with socialism. Uh, another one we talked about is the price mechanism. I think Ludwig von Mises, he, he did amazing work on this, that... Uh, people who claim that these systems can work, it's actually based on a flawed principle that it can never actually work in practice. Yeah, what Mises was saying is that you need prices, you need private property, you need profits and losses, okay? Because you have to, because in a world of scarcity, you have to know where to guide these factors of production. One of the mistakes that socialists make, and and it goes back not just to Marx, but also people like Thorstein Veblen and your modern um, and, and your modern progressives. What they believe is that all you need is a production function and political will. And so, in other words, okay, we know how to make something, all right. And so now, how do we get the things you know to put into that in order you know to make it and Production, you know, mechanisms don't come out of thin air. It's just that, hey, how am I going to make this? Okay, well, the question is, why did you make it in the first place? Mm -hmm. And the point is that even their price systems had, you know, you know, it, it's not like you just you could totally separate the two because what you, you know, there are times when the resources needed to make something are so, you know, you need so much you just don't make it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so you, you end up with, um, um, a, uh, um, 
you know, a, a situation, you end up with a situation in which you really lose focus on what resources should be used where. All right. Isn't, and isn't profit loss like a signal, like a the pain pleasure signal in the human body? It's it's similar to that to to let you know where there's demand, and then yeah. then with the supply, then then you have the supply and demand type function in the market economy. I think yeah, I think what yeah that it 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 tells you, um. It, you know, and in a real sense, it's it's telling you this that the value of the resource is being used to produce whatever is greater than the value of whatever it is being produced. Value has a role because it it um, it tells you about these about these resources and in fact that they should be used elsewhere. That's a, you know that's the signal it gives you and. What the Green New Dealers would say would be, well, that's why do we, you know, that's just a marketism. That's just people's opinions. I mean, they could be wrong. And so why don't we get the experts and people like us? We know what needs to be done. And so let's just do it. You know, and they're in their mind, you know, that uh, a, uh, a price system is chaotic. It takes long. That we all know what needs to be done, so we need to do it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Don't try to figure out to whether you can make a profit of it. Just go ahead and do it because we're trying to save humanity. Yeah, and so definitely. That, I think they that is the. It's almost like salvation. It's almost like heaven and hell. I think. Yeah. I, I've been oh, yeah. reading a lot about Carl Jung's work lately and about how. I think humans are fundamentally religious creatures and that if you yeah. take away somebody's God, you have to replace it with another God. And I think the state has filled that role for a lot of people. Yeah, people people look upon the state as the super entity that can can do anything. I mean, let's step back for a second. Let's go back to our friend Chairman Mao. There are a lot of people out there uh, who believe that you can impose one thing after another. You can kill off, um, you know, 50, 60 million people. You can kill them off. You can do this. But somehow, out of all that, you can will come a system that's going to work. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, my question is, well, why? <laughs> why should that happen? I mean, it seems to me if you're killing off... A lot of people, you're creating chaos. You're not coming up with something that's workable. I mean, we don't have anything that kills off that kind of the. I mean, this is why is this necessary? And um, and they'll well, it is. And you know, now there isn't any more starvation in China. Well, there, you know, it's starvation that your ideas caused uh, in the first place. That's why they had all, you know. I mean, because what they wanted us to believe was China was just this this really crazy, chaotic, awful place beforehand. The communists came in and they fixed things. Well, I understand China had been involved, had been invaded, you know, by Japan in 1931, and and Japan was was waging war on there. When you're waging war on on people, you're going to create all sorts of, of problems. But this is the idea that somehow. Pre-communist China was so such a hellhole. China that the communists had to come and fix it. I mean, I, I heard this explanation, you know, for Vietnam. 
mm-hmm. and that uh, well the communists will come in. I remember, I remember uh, Tom Gerald on uh, a- ABC News in a documentary regarding Jamaica. This was back in 1980, and. Their belief was that a socialist system will work. That Jamaicans, I mean, they're they're kind of crazy anyway, whatnot. So they they need they need to be have somebody come in and organize things for them. I remember watching CBS News, us, uh, you know, and Dan Rather. They had a, a thing on Ethiopia, and you know how the the communists are have come in. Look how they they've got the village organized now. No more of this disorganization. Of course, Ethiopia, you know, had a huge famine, and you know, we are the world in the 1980s, and um, but they never learned the lesson because they still believe the original narrative. Mm-hmm. Believe that you can somehow that that you can bring you know that that socialism, collectivism brings order to chaos, and out of order will come this new, you know. Utopia, yeah, utopian society, whatever, and they, you know, and they keep coming back to it. But I mean, again, it's no different than Max Boot, you know. Well, if we could just have regime change in Iran, you know, and and for the rest of us, it's faceplant, you know. That you know, has it never occurred to you that maybe the Iranians just might resist? Exactly. Uh, yeah, like Venezuela, there's talk about you know doing things oh. down there, Nicaragua. You know, there's, there's please, yeah, I know, and and I'm not thinking. You know something? Let the Venezuelan Venezuelan government is doing a great job of taking away all legitimacy of their rule, of destroying everything. Why do we need to get in there and give people a reason to give their, you know, the Venezuelan leadership legitimacy? Because people, when you bring in attacks from abroad, the people are going. You know, they're they're they're, you know, they're going to coalesce and resist. Yeah, and um, the uh, uh, and 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 likewise in, in Nicaragua, we just. But it's it's like the, these folks cannot help themselves. They have to engage in all of these interventions, and you know we got to have our hand in there. Why? Let's just. I would rather not get the United States involved in overthrowing any of these regimes because whatever, and and I don't know why Americans believe, well, we could just establish a puppet regime and everything will be great. No, people resist puppet regimes. I and mean, people it. recognize, like in Iraq. Right. I mean, I remember they had this, you know, signing the Iraq Constitution. I'm thinking... Why would anybody think? Why would anybody in Iraq believe that to be legitimate? It's like you know, the Americans you know have, have come in to to you know give order or whatnot. No, I mean they came in created disorder. How is it that? Uh, that I look at it this way. I look at it this way, Bill. Is that um, government has a product which is order, right? That's their product to sell to yeah. everybody. And so what they do to create demand. <laughs> Is is to create chaos around the world, and that and that stimulates, uh, you know, their their need for order to go. Yeah, oh, oh, I know, and and the, the truth is that, that a lot of times you're creating chaos in their plans to establish order. I mean, they it's think endless. they're establishing order, and you end up with chaos, and and then people say, well, the government has to come in now and fix it. Well, you know, how is it you know, being that they're 
that they caused the problem in the first place, and their solution is to do exactly what they've been doing. Uh, so yeah, you you end up with a real problem, and you know something like and 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 I and I, will come, I know we're coming to the, near the end. Something I need I think really needs to be said about the Green New Deal. A lot sure. of people are looking at it and saying, well, this is so unworkable that it's never going to happen. Well, you're right in one sense. It won't happen in the way that they do. We're not going to have high-speed trains crisscrossing you know, the, the Great Plains. You're not going to have uh, these things. What you're going to have is Ponham. What you're going to have is something like out of out of the Hunger Games. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking I should have probably use that, maybe I will, that, yeah, you you have, you impoverish the rest of the country, but Washington lives, you know, they, they you know, they're already directing resources to themselves, and they do it, they do it through force. I mean, that's really what you would, a Green New Deal would give us that, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I, and, I see it as giving us more of the same because we have already a huge collectivist type system within the federal government. Oh with yeah, the, with the Federal Reserve, I think, and nobody oh, really yeah. discusses that, and that's one of the issues I think is causing a lot of this wealth disparity and also um, oh, leading to yeah. misallocation of capital and all of these terrible things. Yeah, I think you're right, and I, I think that, uh, um, and that's, and, and I'll tell you the reason is because. You and I see interest rates in a very different way than the typical Keynesian, which tends to dominate everything. That they look at interest rates as always being too low. They have their they have the aggregate demand viewpoint and the idea that that the purpose of interest rates is to let money flow into it because for whatever reason, if, the, if you have a market system, people are going to be deprived of the capital that they need. Where in fact, what you're doing is it's the interest rates are used to tell you which are going to be profitable, which makes sense, which lines of production make sense, and which don't, all right? But once you turn interest rates into something else, they become your enemy. Right. And uh, I remember reading an article on, on the fee site saying that uh, easy money is rotting the economy from inside out. I think that there is a lot to be said for that. That um, and so what they believe is, hey, we'll just empower the the Federal Reserve. Well, that's what they did after 2008. Uh, one of the things that I, I show my students is a uh, it's a diagram of Federal Reserve asset holdings since 2008. You see it; it goes like this, and all of a sudden, like that. And what you have basically is the Fed through purchases, regular asset purchases, propping up about 20% of the economy. What they're doing is 20% of, of, the, of the assets in, these, in, these, in the country are underperforming. So in order to keep their prices up, the Fed is out there quietly buying these, you know, these assets, propping them up. What does that mean? That means then you have a huge portion of the economy that's underperforming, which drags down everything else, and then you have to compensate other ways. And one of the ways is through government debt, mm. and uh, um, you know, and through these through deficits and, and everything else. But but when you have you know, and why why don't they just you know, stop? I mean, they they understand the problem, but 
if you stop, then you're going to have in the short term people whose, you know, livelihoods are tied to these assets. They're going to be in real trouble because the value of their assets is going to fall to zero. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and a lot of these people are politically connected. So, yeah, they're not going to do that. They're not going to ever do that. And so what you have is that everything else just muddles along. And, you know, like, you know, I can see it. You know, I can tell you what's happening. I can tell you what's going to happen. But um, we don't, you know, unfortunately, it's, you know, that, you know, that it's, it, Americans don't understand. They don't understand that assets are real things. They just believe that through some sort of fiat, through government order, we can change the value of assets overnight. And now we'll declare these assets to be valuable. And yeah, you can make them artificially valuable. It's like ethanol. You know, ethanol is, you know, in corn that it's used to grow it. And this is all about, it's a valuable crop, but only because of other policies. You know, if people were given the, you know, their own choice, it would never be, have the same kind of value. Yeah, but that means, you, that means you have to take from something else that uh, um, and the Keynesians will say, well, not as long as you have idle resources. Well, the Keynesians don't answer the question why we have idle resources in the first place. Right, exactly. And on a long enough curve, we're all dead anyway, right? That's I think Keynes, that was his famous quote. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, well, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right. And I think you had a great point. And uh, about the people who are around the system, like in the central planning of the Soviet Union, they benefited greatly personally, even though they knew it was a lie, even oh, though yeah. they knew the system was a lie. And I think Washington, D.C. has five of the top 10 richest counties in the country. And so you have this right. massive draw, like a magnet of people, even if like Paul Krugman, who changed his mind in 2004 to now, you know, is he going to benefit potentially if this new Green Deal goes into effect? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a really good point. You know, that they're already drawing resources to themselves in D.C. and um, losing touch with reality in the process of the Green Yeah, The Green New Deal, to me, does represent a certain loss of touch with reality. But look at the other wealthy places. Well, it's where the high-tech people are, mm -hmm. and they're all tied, you know, they're all left-wing now. They're all tied to the government. Okay. Um, and so um, that uh, uh, that's the, you know, that's the other side to it. I mean, that places where people just are in normal activity, you know, they, they don't rate anymore. They're, and their purpose is, uh, their purpose now is to give up their resources so that uh, Washington, you know, can be wealthier and, and like, and, and I, th I think that that's, you know, that's really a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a shame, but it's, it's what's going on. Yeah, definitely. And with the green new deal, I think it might be a trial balloon as well to move the bar further towards that, even though they'll oh, yeah. say they'll, they'll, they'll be seen as a centrist when they say, Oh no, that's crazy, but we'll do X, Y, and Z within the new green deal. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, like I said, I've used, it was while I was thinking as well, I was, I was using, um, you know, the great leap forward, but I'll be honest. I think hunger games has, there's a certain application there too. I mm -hmm. mean, it's, you know, hunger games is, 
I mean, it's fantasy. It's it's to a certain extent science fiction, um, and uh, whatnot. But the attitude is there. I mean, Washington siphons off huge amounts of of productivity. People there live. Yeah, we spend seven trillion dollars a year on government in different places. You know, with state and federal, that's a huge investment. Yeah, and it, so much of it goes into Washington. Those folks down there are the beneficiaries, but they're not producing anything. Right. In fact, they're keeping things from being produced, but but in their minds, they are life is essential. You couldn't, you know, that they are the heartbeat of this country, whereas they really are not. You know, they're the heart attack of this country. <laughs> I like that. I had on Dr. Houston yesterday. She has a company that uses blockchain tech in healthcare, trying to yeah. bring more f medical freedom to the world. And she talked about just the regulatory burden that doctors are under. And I had oh, yeah. a, another person on, Dr. Mary Ruer, talk about the FDA's regulation and what that affects. Because we blame, a lot of times we'll blame doctors or the pharmaceutical industry, when in reality it's the regulations that are causing the behaviors that people are finding objectionable. Yeah, you incentive, you know, and once you create incentives, people are going to go to those incentives. Mm -hmm. And that's something you and I understand, but um, it's not something that, you know, people on the left understand. They just, they don't see it. Yep, definitely. Well, Bill, I really appreciate your time, man. Is there anything that you would leave people with if they have people in their life who are starting to, um, to gravitate towards this idea I think personally what you talked about, the price system and the basis of force, I think that to me is the real um, issue when it comes to these ideas. What would you say would be at the crux of uh, giving the other side of the argument to the New Green Deal for somebody? Well, I think that they what they believe is that they through, through force and through their own brilliance or whatever, that they can transform an entire economy and – it's never been done. Every, anybody who's ever tried to do that in history has failed. And when I mean failed, I mean it resulted in the deaths of millions of people. Now, what they, what they say yep. is you're using hyperbole. Oh, my exactly. God, your scare tactics and all that. I'm just, I'm just asking them to think about it. What happens when you redirect factors of production and into things that you into things, by the way, that right now and and as far as we know in the future are not going to be able to perform the way that we would like them to. Uh, the you know that do, are they is is there, are they really are they ready to live with less than half the electricity that we have in this country right now? How are you going to have a network of high speed electric electrically um, powered high-speed rail when you're not even going to have enough electricity, you know, for the homes. What are you going to do when, you know, how are you going to heat homes in the wintertime? Please explain that to me. How are you going to do it? Because, uh, well, wood is polluting. Wood will, really, you know, that uh, and all, you know, and these are practical questions. And the answer is, well, we'll come up with something. No, you won't come up with something uh, any more than, uh, hey, you're not studying for the exam. How do you expect to pass? Oh, we'll f I'll figure out a way to pay. You know, it doesn't work <laughs> that way. And, and I, th I think that, that um, you know, for me, it's the, you know, the, there's a certain advantage of hindsight. But 
for a lot of young people, they're ideal, you know, idealistic. Oh my, you know, and we only have 12 more years. That's a whole other thing. 12 more years. Okay, who says that? Why? Just because a 29-year-old bartender from uh, from New York um, says we have only 12 years? I mean, it was you know that uh, was she given some sort of gift of prophecy here? I mean, how is it that 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 she can come up with this? And you know, I, again, I, I just think that. Uh, um, yeah, it, it's hard. You know, people are going to believe what they want to believe. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm sure that my colleagues here at Frostburg, you know, if they were to see this video, would probably not be really happy with, you know, with my viewpoints. And yeah, I, I would agree. It would be a threat. Yeah, definitely. It would be a threat to them. Um, I think you're right on a lot of that, Bill. I think we agree on the idea that uh, – I'm sorry. I had to plug my uh, computer in there. I had to move okay. there for a second. Um, but I, I, I really appreciate your time, Bill, and, yeah, and your perspective you on this. Yeah, uh, definitely. Love to have you back on maybe talk about the Federal Reserve and maybe how the warfare state affects people at home as well. All right. That will be good. Thanks. Excellent. And I'll have all your contact information on chronicallyhuman.co. And thanks, okay. everybody, for watching, and I hope that uh, that you'll take it to heart that there is a difference between the free market and socialist systems. So thanks Amen. for watching.